Hey everybody, welcome again to F This Movie, the official podcast of FThisMovie.com, movie love for movie lovers. My name is Patrick Bromley and I'm super excited for this week's show because we're talking about one of the most, I won't bury the lead here, one of the most underrated movies of the 1990s, Dead Presidents, directed by the Hughes Brothers, and I'm joined for this very special discussion by Rosalie Lewis. Hey, Rosalie. Hey, Patrick. How are you doing? I am doing fantastic. We're recording on the eve of a vacation that I'm extremely unprepared for. Uh, but I'm excited that I get to talk about this movie because I agree with you. It's super underrated. So thanks yes. for letting me talk about a movie I love. Thank you for suggesting it. Uh, we were trying to think of something to podcast about and you threw out this title. And right away I thought, yes, that's the one. Um it is also the eve of the eve of my vacation. So by the time this podcast comes out, both of us will be on vacation and completely oblivious to the uh, tremendous amounts of blowback I'm sure we're going to get from this podcast. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> J.K. Right? Uh, <laughs> all those dead Prezi haters are going to be yeah. furious with us for recommending this movie. Um. Hey, have you seen anything good lately? Oh, I have. A lot of good stuff. All um, right. I went through a phase of not watching a lot of movies in general, and now I've been trying to catch up a little bit. And so, um, yeah, I'll, I'll limit it to a smaller list than I originally had. But, um, yeah, I have a lot of good ones. So All right. I'll start out with one that I know was mentioned on last week's episode, but um, maybe you've seen it by now, maybe not. And that is Wes Anderson's newest one, Asteroid City. I still haven't seen it. I'm a terrible um, person. You're not a terrible person, but it is a fun movie. Um, yeah. Actually, I saw this as a double feature with Fast X, uh, a very fun double feature with two extremely different tones, but um, I was enjoying both of them. So Asteroid City for me, and I say this as like a full-hearted Wes Anderson fan, right? So, I mean, take that for what it's worth. But to me, this was a bit of a return to form. I wasn't as sold on the French Dispatch. I think there were parts of it that were great. But for me, the overall conceit of it didn't completely hold together. Sure. Um, and I did enjoy Isle of Dogs, but it didn't stick with me the way that fantastic Mr. Fox, for example, did. So for me, I was like, Oh, like this is, we're back at it. Like this is good Wes. Um, there's a lot to digest and I don't know that I necessarily have digested all of it, but I was enjoying the whole ride. I was enjoying the story within a story meta nature of it. And it felt ambitious more so than some of his other projects have. And I feel like that's saying a lot because he always puts a lot of thought and purpose and artistic direction into all of his projects. This one, you know, I feel like required probably more assembly and it also has a very large cast, even though some of them are only in it for a short time. Um, but it all really worked for me. And I, I know it won't be for everybody, but for me, it was really like moving and, and had more emotional like beats to it than some of his others. Um, I think if I were to compare it to like the tone of one of his other movies, I would say it's a little Moonrise Kingdom, but not as much from the kid's point of view. Like there's sure. a little bit of that, but it's like 
if Moonrise Kingdom was more focused on the Bruce Willis and Tilda Swinton kind of character arcs more so than the kids. Okay. Um, there's a lot in here about grief. There's a lot in here about isolation. That makes it sound like it's a really sad movie or something. It's <laughs> not. Um, it actually is quite joyous and has a lot of really great humorous things in it, but it deals with heavier subject matter in a way that I really liked about Grand Budapest Hotel, for example. And I think that Wes does some of his best work when he is taking on those kind of bigger emotional subjects. And so for me, it really kind of resonated and I am looking forward to seeing it again. I know it's coming to digital, but I want to see it in theaters again because all of his stuff always looks better on a big screen. So hopefully you'll get the chance to catch it at the theater. Yeah, I really want to. By the time we get back from our trip, it will be on digital. And I know the temptation will be there to just rent it or buy it on digital. Um, But that would be a shame because I wonder if French Dispatch was his first movie that I didn't see in theaters. Mm -hmm. And like you, I probably didn't like it as much as some of his previous works. And I wonder if any of that has to do with not seeing it on a big screen uh, because his compositions are so cinematic and so suited to the big screen experience that I wonder if that impacted my viewing. It may not have, maybe I just didn't connect with the movie, but, uh, I want to give Asteroid City every opportunity to succeed for me. And so I really need to go see it in theaters. Yes. And ideally, then you will follow that up with a robust screening of Fast X. <laughs> that will more than likely not happen. Uh, I know. I know. Um, I probably am now the only of this movie person that loves that franchise still, um, even now. But I... I know it it has a lot of flaws and I completely like listening to you and Adam talk about it on the podcast. I was like, okay, yeah, that's true. That's true. That's true. Somehow I still loved it. Somehow I was like clapping my hands and like stomping my feet, getting really into it, laughing, cheering. I don't know, man, it works for me. So there is no part of me that wants to take that away from you, even though I didn't like the movie. It's great to hear that, uh, that you did and that that franchise is still going for you. Did you enjoy the Momoa of it all? Oh man. Yes, I did. <laughs> um, and I'm not even particularly a big Momoa fan. Okay. What he was doing in it, it did feel like it felt like a little bit of a throwback to the Jack Nicholson Joker a bit okay, for me. Sure. And I'm a sucker for that. Um, okay. And yeah, to me, it showcased a little bit of a different side because usually he's like, uh, either playing the heavy or playing like the superhero type. And this one, he's neither. I mean, he's a heavy, but he's also like a goofball. So right. goofball is a good of, word. It, it worked. Um, yeah. It shouldn't work. It doesn't make any sense. I just have a lot of love for it. So. And how did you feel about your boy, Vin? Um, he's had better movies. <laughs> <laughs> He's had better movies, but I mean, I, I don't know. He, he holds it all together. And like, since we don't have Paul Walker to, to be the glue anymore, you know, I, I'm kind of glad that he's kept it going. Um, even as just like a passion project, I don't know how it's going to play when they're like splintering off into different, because he said, right. That they're going to splinter off into different universes with like a movie for the women of, you know, the story and 
maybe, you know, some of the other characters, side characters are going to get something besides Hobbs and Shaw. So I'm not sure. We'll see how well that works. It almost needs to be broken out into smaller pieces because as you all said, like, there's just like so many people in this movie and why are they all in this movie? But um, yeah, I'm interested to see if it, if they scale it back, could it work better because it'll be a little bit more lean and mean. So we'll see. Well, and that's um, kind of that's kind of what's happening now anyway, because nobody wants yeah. to work with Vin. So everybody's like off in their own subplot yeah. and off in their own story. Should they make like a Tej and Roman movie? I can't promise I will go see it. As much as I love Roman, as much as I love Tyrese, I like I don't think I'm interested in a in a Fast and Furious universe. Yeah, that's fair. And I mean, so I was telling Andy, like, I feel like this is my like Marvel or DC universe. Like there are diehards for those movies that will see every, you know, spinoff side project alternate universe version and like watch all the TV shows. That's probably me. Like I am the sucker target audience. for this. <laughs> um, so yeah, probably they wouldn't make any sense or wouldn't necessarily work great, but I will continue to watch them as long as they exist. I respect this. Yeah, you probably shouldn't, but that's okay. <laughs> um, so I will move from Fast X to a movie that um, one of my coworkers turned me on to that's on Netflix. It's um, a Hindi film called And Hadoon. Um, and this is a movie, I think it's from like 2018. Um, and it's a very interesting story. I am not like super well-versed in Hindi films. I've been trying to watch more of them because more of them are available thanks to places like Netflix and Prime. And the ones I have seen, I've been like really interested in and fascinated by. Mm -hmm. So this one is directed by Sriram Raghavan and um, the title translates to Blind Tune. And so the basic premise as it starts is that there's a pianist who is visually impaired and he um, is playing piano at a restaurant gets invited to do a private performance for um, someone's anniversary and while he's there a crime is committed and then um, a lot of other layers unfold and uh, the question of whether he is actually blind or not comes up um, the question of like, you know, who the real criminals are. There's a lot of layers to this thing and it goes in so many different directions. Um, and it's not even all that long. Like a lot of these, you know, Hindi movies tend to be a few hours long. This one is 138 minutes. So shorter than most Hollywood movies now. <laughs> um, but it goes in so many different directions. I don't even know where to start I could start talking but I feel like it would all be spoilers but then like how do you spoil something this like not so sure berserk? I loved it though um it's a thriller it's a drama there's a little bit of a love story thrown in there's some horror elements it's everything um right. so I highly recommend it um it's spelled a-n-d-h-a-d-h-u-n if you're searching for it on Netflix Okay. Um, and yeah, definitely worth taking a detour and watching this incredibly compelling, weird, awesome movie. Nice. My knowledge of Hindi cinema is Indian cinema, cinema in general is, yeah. is lacking 
So I'm yeah. always looking for that movie that's going to like turn me on to all of it. Um, yeah. And this sounds like it could be it. It's really good. It's not as good as RRR, but like what is? So, <laughs> um, which I don't know if you've caught up with that one yet. I, I have seen RRR. It was yeah. very impressive. I found it to be a little bit like exhausting. Sure. I get that. But it was also really fun. It was super fun. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's a it's a long one. It's an epic. This one again, it's not as long. Um, and I feel like it still takes you on quite a journey. So okay. yeah, I'll be curious if you end up watching it, like what your reaction is. Yeah, for sure. Um, and then I watched a awesome movie, screwball comedy from the 1930s. Um, it was on the Criterion channel because they have like a screwball comedy section, and I just needed like a palate cleanser. And so I watched Easy Living, um, and this was directed by Mitchell Lyson, but it was written by Preston Sturgis, who is like the king of screwball. And um, it was also like the story, original story was by Vera Kasperi, um, who is a novelist that wrote, most famously wrote Laura, um, which is a great film noir, but um, this is not a film noir at all. It's just a funny um, and, and freewheeling movie about... JB Ball, who is this rich banker, and he's also like super grumpy about his wife and his son spending his money. Um, so he gets into fights with both of them at the beginning of the movie. Uh, his son decides that he's gonna try to make it on his own and be independent, and he's mad at his wife because she bought a sable fur coat that was like $58,000. And I think in 1930s money, that's even more ridiculous than it <laughs> sounds now. Um, so he throws the coat over the top of the, the roof and it gets caught by a woman played by Jean Arthur, who is on her way to work and she is not rich at all. Um, she's, you know, kind of like scraping pennies together to try to pay her rent. And this coat basically changes her life in a weird way because through a series of mix-ups and, um, you know, the natural things that happen in screwball comedies, people think that she must be this banker's mistress. And so she starts getting all this free stuff and there's gossip about her and everybody wants a piece of her. So it's a, it's a very fun and silly movie, very lighthearted. It's also nice and short, 88 minutes. Um, And if you have, you know, a need in your life for something that will take your mind off of your troubles, this is definitely a good one for that. Nice. All right. Yeah. Is, um, it doesn't look like it. Never mind. There's an easy living from 1949 also that I was like, oh, is this a remake? But it's not. It's a oh. Jacques, Jacques Tourneur, Tourneur movie. Um, okay. Sounds a little bit more noir-ish. I should know about that because I like him, but no, I, I'm not familiar with that one. Um, Victor Mature and Lucille Ball. Now I have to watch both wow. easy livings. Yeah. Now I have to look this other one up because I like both of them a lot. Yeah, so. right. Um Great. I foolishly canceled the Criterion channel a while ago just because I was, we just had too many streaming services. And then that's the one that I probably should get back, but I don't know which one to cancel like in its place. Uh, I just wasn't using it enough, but there's so much stuff on there that I want to see, especially now as like TCM is dismantled and, Right. abandoned criterion channel may be the only place to go for some of this stuff 
Yeah, Canopy sometimes is helpful too. Like they'll have some of the same content sometimes. And that's, you know, if you have a library, you can usually get access to Canopy. But yeah, for me, I have a lot of Criterion Channel like guilt because I don't watch enough stuff on there. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, yeah, whenever I do, I'm like, this is why I have it. So, and I actually have been trying to like cancel subscriptions to other things at least for the summer so that i can like go outside every once in a while <laughs> um but criterion is one of the ones i'm keeping just because yeah i don't know which ones to get rid of like it's a hard decision it sucks we have we have real problems is my point we do we do <laughs> um so speaking of problems um, yes. i watched i watched the kurt russell movie dark blue um oh yes and I don't know why I hadn't seen it sooner. Um, it was, you know, one of those movies I always heard was good and I love Kurt Russell and it seemed kind of noirish. Um, so yeah, I finally got around to it and, you know, I would say it was, it was solid, but not like mind blowing for me. And that's fine. Like sometimes that's what I'm looking for. I thought it was interesting that it was set during the whole like Rodney King, you know, yeah. trial riots and things like that, because it could have definitely been set in, you know, I think it came out, what, 2002? It could have been set in that time and still, I think, worked. But um, it was interesting that that decision was made. And I I always have, like, a little bit of heartburn around, like, we're going to show you this really racist, um, hmm. horrible piece of shit person. And then by the end, you're secretly going to be rooting for them. Right, um, right. And this movie does fall into that a little bit. But I thought it balanced it fairly well with the other things that were going on. I think it's probably its biggest like holdback is that Scott Speedman is probably not quite ready for prime time in the way that, you know, Kurt Russell is. So sure. those didn't work as well. And also, you know, having seen Ethan Hawke and Denzel do this in training day, um, that was, it, it's just hard not to compare the two. Um, but sure. I did enjoy it. So, um, yeah, I'm sure you've seen it probably more times than I have, but. I don't think I've seen it in like 20 years. Like, I think we <laughs> blind bought the DVD in like 2003 because it was a Kurt Russell cop movie. And I was like, oh, one, please. Yeah. Uh, and we watched <laughs> it. And I remember really liking it. Didn't James Elroy have something to do with it? Yeah, I believe he wrote it. Okay. Uh, that I mean, it sounds right. Oh, it's James Elroy and David Ayer. <laughs> so, oh, so there you go. Yeah. There's there there's. I don't know if those two names should be mentioned in the same sentence, but it makes mm -hmm. sense if it's a movie about corrupt policemen that those two yeah. would have their fingerprints on it. I remember it being directed by Ron Shelton, and it being like a departure for Ron Shelton because it's right. not about sports. Uh, yeah. I didn't realize he had written the best of times with Kurt Russell and Robin Williams. Kino just announced cool. the Blu-ray and it said there's a commentary with Roger Spottiswood and screenwriter Ron Shelton. And I was like, oh my gosh, I mean, it makes sense. It's a sports comedy. So of course Ron yeah. Shelton wrote it, but I would consider myself a Ron Shelton fan. Um, mm -hmm. I like most of his movies and I remember really liking Dark Blue, but like I said, it's been a long time. Yeah. Well, I mean, for me, the best performance in the, I mean, Kurt Russell's great, of course, but yeah. when is he not? But right. for me, like the revelation of the movie was Michael Michelle. I thought she was really good. Yeah. And I hadn't really seen her in many other things, which is actually what led me to watch 
the next movie, which was New Jack City. Um, <gasps> another movie that I definitely should have seen before now. And you I had never it. seen New Jack City? I had never seen it. And it was such a treat. I was like, this movie is made for me. I loved it. Um, Loved, loved, loved. And I had no idea what I was in for. I just knew, like, I'd seen, when I worked at the movie store, I'd seen this DVD come in, you know, every so often. And people were always looking for it. And now I know why, because it's fantastic. <laughs> I've been trying to program that for Smash Cut since it started, but there's no existing DCP. Oh man. So we this can't. Is of, this is one of the ones where I almost feel like you can just put the Blu ray in. I would watch this on the big screen in any circumstance. Yes. It's, yeah. I love New Jack City uh, quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. And I, um, I, it just reminded me of how much I sort of miss seeing like Wesley Snipes on the screen. Yeah. I feel like he had such a strong 90s and then, you know, things happened i guess but he was so 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 good in the 90s and i i really do i miss him on the big screen and i don't know if he's ever had a better role than nino brown like he's great in lots of stuff but i just think nino brown really shows the range of what he's capable of Mm -hmm. um and he's like the most charismatic charismatic villain uh but everybody in that movie kicks so much ass i love ice in that movie too Yes, Ice-T is fantastic. Yeah. I loved, you know, Bill Cobbs. I loved, yeah, just like even seeing Chris Rock play more of a, a bit part, not bit part, but like a supporting character, right? right? He doesn't appear as much. And when I saw him on the, you know, the poster, I was assuming, oh, it's Chris Rock, like he's going to have a big role to play. And then he, you know, he has an important role, but it's not a large role. Right. Um, and Judd Nelson even though at first I was like, they put Judd Nelson in a movie about like crack cocaine in New York, but then it, it, they make it make sense. Right. Yeah. So it all works. It's, I think, uh, I think this Mario Van Peebles might know what he's doing. <laughs> that was one of the few celebrity interviews I've ever done was I got to interview Judd Nelson for the DVD release of new Jack city. And he could oh, not wow. have been nicer. Yeah. He was, that is awesome. Yeah. It was really, uh, it was very cool. I was very starstruck. I bet I would be yeah. too. Holy shit! Yeah, yeah. that's super cool. Um, yeah, yeah. And Flava Flav is in this movie. Like, he sure he's is. <laughs> the soundtrack kicks ass. Yeah, it's so good. No, so, it's so good. Uh, it's a great, great movie. It, Mario Van Peebles has made other movies that I like, but never one that I think fulfilled the promise of New Jack City. Yeah. It's really, really good. I mean, it's a high bar to clear, you know, it'd be tough to do better. Um, So, yeah, I'm I'm really glad I finally got to see that one. Me too. Um, And then the last movie I will talk about, sorry, I'm talking about so many movies, Patrick, but the last movie. Never apologize for talking about movies on our movie (laughs) podcast. I don't know if it's allowed. I feel like I'm talking (laughs) about movies too much. Um, No, I watched Blackberry. Have you seen this yet? I haven't. I know of it. And I think Rob reviewed it, but I haven't seen it. Okay. So I was a little bit skeptical of like another movie about technology, but it's really fun. Okay. Um, I, you know, I love Jay Baruchel and Jay Baruchel basically plays like one of the co-founders of the people that invented Blackberry. And um, it's weird because he, I'm used to seeing him and thinking of him as like, the guy you know that is in the 
all the like fun young people movies right <laughs> better term, right you know those um, young people like, not, movies those young people like the, she's out of my league and knocked right. up and this is the right. end all of those and i first came to know him through undeclared where he's a college student but then i was like oh that was like 22 years ago so, <laughs> oh my god um so i'm gonna just go jump out the window now but <laughs> um yeah so he it's weird because he has like super gray hair in the movie and i was like is this like a bit but i don't think it is really um well i mean i don't think he really has gray hair in real life oh, okay. but i think his character isn't it's meant to be like an older person i guess i don't got know. it okay um but yeah very fun um it is a movie that doesn't take itself super seriously um but it also doesn't get so caught up in the like um let the geeks in inherit the earth like it it does a good job of portraying like what the foibles were and kind of what went wrong mm -hmm. and examining a little bit of the like tech startup culture um and also just the greed of it all and like how you know you know that can ruin things um glenn howerton is great in this movie as like you know the kind of characters that rob lowe is playing in like the wayne's world yep. time period um he plays kind of that guy Okay. And he does it so well with like <laughs> so much swagger. And I never really watched It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. I know a lot of people know him from that. Um, but I thought he was great in this. He was definitely the discovery for me. So um, another thing that uh, elevated it was like all the pop culture references because, you know, um, I think the guy that wrote it and created it, Matt Johnson, is probably around like my age or a little bit older. I'm not sure. But there was lots of like you know, 90s movies and 90s pop culture and lots of like Ninja Turtles references and all this <laughs> other stuff. So that made it kind of fun to watch just from like an Easter egg point of view. Yeah. Um, but yeah, definitely super fun. I think it was on the Paramount channel. Oh, really? Remember, but it's okay. somewhere. Yeah. Okay. I thought it was still a rental, but are you saying it could be? Oh, I thought it was free, but I don't know. To no, be honest you might you, be right. I, I can't even keep up anymore. There, there's too many ways to watch movies. Again, another bad problem that we should not have to have. <laughs> <laughs> so this movie, I want to say, opened the Chicago Critics Film Festival this year. Um, Matt Johnson is kind of a friend of the Chicago Film Critics Association because... Cool the first year they did the festival or maybe the second it might have been the second year they did the festival his debut was there and it's a found footage sort of movie called the dirties interesting okay. have you seen the dirties i have not so it's on i just looked it up it's on prime it's on freebie um i really recommend it it's it's tough in terms of where it goes uh, and I don't even want to say what it's about, except that it's about these two kids in high school who like making their own movies. Okay. Um, but I think it's really worth seeing. I remember being pretty knocked out by it when I saw it back in like 2013 or 2014. Um, and I don't think I put it together that he also made Blackberry until you just said the writer director is Matt Johnson. I was like, I'm pretty sure that's the dirty sky. Um so if you have time, either before your vacation or after, uh, I really recommend the dirties. Well, I have some dirty laundry I could be doing oh, while watching. No. The I'm dirties. sorry. 
no we're not like <laughs> we i cannot condone this i'm sorry um, i kicked myself off the podcast for that one. <laughs> he also made a movie called operation avalanche that i have not seen yeah. uh but now i kind of want to because like i said i'm a fan i don't even know what yeah. it's about um but whatever well, he's, he's definitely one that i am curious to watch because i really enjoyed not only like the writing and directing, but he's in the movie as well. Like he plays one of the main characters and he's great in it. So yeah, I'll definitely be curious to see what he does next. And now I need to catch up with what he did before. Yeah, absolutely. Um, All right. Is that it? That's it. I'm finally done. No, that's okay. I'm glad. I only have two movies to talk about because I've been recording too many podcasts lately. <laughs> And uh, so I'm not able to, and I've just been too busy to watch very many movies, but I did the other night, Erica and I pulled out our Blu-ray, unwrapped our Blu-ray of Night Shift from 1982, the Ron Howard, not debut, but kind of the movie that put him on the map. His first movie was like Eat My Dust or Grand Theft Auto. He might've made both of those for Roger Corman. Uh, His like studio debut was Night Shift starring Henry Winkler and Michael Keaton and Shelley Long. And I hadn't seen it in a number of years. I remember it being like cute. Um, but man, rewatching it the other night, I was like, this is one of the great comedies of the 1980s. This is like, have you seen Night Shift? I have not. Okay. So but you're telling me on it. Definitely. It, it, Henry Winkler is like this super mild mannered uh, mortician. Michael Keaton in his debut feature uh, starts working there and he's kind of a Michael Keaton fast talking. uh, He's carries a tape recorder because he has all these ideas like how we should just feed mayonnaise directly to tuna so that we can more easily make (laughs) tuna salad. Um, Disgusting, but I'm in. Yeah, right. And Shelley Long plays uh, a hooker with a heart of gold because it was her turn to play that character in 1982. Uh, She's neighbors with Henry Winkler and has a falling out with her pimp. Well, her pimp, uh, spoilers, I guess, is murdered. And so Henry Winkler and Michael Keaton decide to start running uh, a prostitution ring out of the mortuary and... uh, it's just, it doesn't sound like the recipe for hilarity, but it is a really funny, really charming, really sweet movie uh, that I was like completely rediscovering the other night. Like I said, I remember it being like cute and kind of a sitcom-y way, but it's really sharp and really, really funny. And Henry Winkler, you know, people have now discovered from like Barry and they're like, Henry Winkler's a great actor, but you know, at the time he was really just the Fonz. And yeah. so to see him play something that's so completely the opposite uh, is really, really awesome. And Michael Keaton, I mean, just is such a force of nature. Like you understand how he became a star just based on that movie. That sounds amazing. I definitely want to watch this. Uh, it might not happen tonight, but it's no. going to happen soon for sure. Yeah, I hope so. Please let me know what you think when you do end up watching it. It doesn't look like it's streaming anywhere, but it's available for rent like everywhere. So, yeah, I have a feeling it's actually in our DVD collection because I'm pretty sure Andy. Has oh, it, there's so a good chance. Yeah, we might have an in with that one. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, and then the only other movie I'll talk about is last night I hosted uh, a screening of Terminator 2 Judgment Day, which I don't think I had seen since F This Movie Fest 2, I want to say. I think it was the second F This Movie Fest we ever did. So it's been about eight years. Um, the same year we showed New Jack City, by the way. Nice. We did 1991. I might need to go revisit that list. That yeah. sounds pretty awesome. 91 was a good year for movies. Uh, can I, off the top of my head, remember what we watched? I don't think I can. Wait. It was only five movies. Okay. Last Boy Scout, New Jack City, Rocketeer, Terminator 2. Nope, can't do it. Can't remember the fifth movie. <laughs> <laughs> uh suffice it to say it was a good year for movies and a good year for at this movie fest uh i hadn't seen terminator 2 theatrically since 1991 and i as i said in my introduction it was like such a formative movie for me my my brother brought me and a friend and it was like the first time i can remember people standing up and cheering spontaneously because it's like you want to you know put cool shit in your movie and terminator 2 is just like wall-to-wall cool shit just even the way linda hamilton cocks the shotgun with one arm it's just like i've never seen that in a movie that's the coolest thing i've ever seen or the way arnold schwarzenegger reloads the shotgun by spinning it on his finger i mean everything in it is like so cool um it made me sad that i know that that summer movies like Terminator 2 is the high watermark for summer movies. I get that. So I'm not expecting every movie to be James Cameron good. But I do wish more movies would like aspire to that at least. Yeah. And not just be shitty. Uh, because I think we're in kind of a shitty time for summer movies right now. You might disagree. You liked Fast X. <laughs> but that was more of a May movie, which is only sort of a summer movie. Well, I think it still counts for summer movies. I think the the season really runs like May to August now. Well, we still have a few promising ones coming up. Absolutely. Um, I am excited for Barbie. I know not everybody, like, it it feels like a mix of hype and people that, like, don't have any interest whatsoever in (laughs) it, but I'm hype trained for Barbie, so I'll be seeing that. And I am interested in Oppenheimer, although Christopher Nolan's last few haven't totally worked for me. Um, totally agree. And then what's totally the agree. what's the one that looks really good that has the two girls in the car that are like delivering cash for something? And I believe it's directed by. Is it Joyride? Um, one of the other movie peoples. No, it's not Joyride. Um, this one comes out in September, I want to say. And I keep oh. seeing trailers for it, and I need to write the name of it down. I haven't seen any but, trailers. I don't know what you're referring to. There's a movie that comes out in August with Rachel Sennett called Bottoms that I really want to see, but that's not I it. I want to see that too, for yeah. sure. Yeah. Um, But no, it's not that. I'll find it. Okay. We'll, we'll figure it out. But um, man, I am sad that I missed that screening. I was at a show in the city seeing sparks um the oh band, cool but also it set off the fire alarm so that was kind of funny um machines <laughs> <laughs> were going a little too hot and heavy um <laughs> yes i'm sad i missed the terminator 2 screening because i've never seen it in theater and i would absolutely love to 
So one day it's going to happen. It was a fun one. Um, We did formally announce that the September smash cut is going to be a double feature of hard target and demolition man. So hopefully you can make it out for that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm very excited. 30th anniversary for both. Speaking of uh, action movies and good uh, entertaining movies that are not movies that came out this summer. Let's talk about dead presidents because this movie rules. Um, I will kick it off with this. I I don't want to be too nostalgic about the 1990s, but it is hard to not be because I was definitely coming up as a film fan at that time, a different kind of film fan than I was in the 80s when I was a kid and uh, movies were very different. One of the things that I like about the 90s is there was a thriving sort of indie scene and then what would happen is you would make a movie as an independent filmmaker and a studio would sort of discover you and hire you to make a big budget follow-up yeah and sometimes that's kevin smith making mall rats and sometimes it's tarantino making pulp fiction and sometimes it's ed burns making she's the one and sometimes it's robert rodriguez making desperado and when i say big budget i mean we're talking about movies that were made for six million dollars seven million dollars right so these were their big budget follow-ups um and it happens with alan and albert hughes because they make menace to society uh and then they sort of blow up and get discovered and get hired by disney to make their follow-up uh dead presidents for what was it like 10 million dollars yeah something like that i mean i want to say it was, I yeah, think it was 10 it, I million. Think the budget was 10 million and it at least doubled i want to say um, yeah it made 24 worldwide yeah. or no 24 domestically actually so it it did fairly well and yet it doesn't get talked about a lot because i don't think it like shows up on cable a lot it never got a blu-ray release um it's just i i think even the dvd might be non-anamorphic yeah i watched it on dvd i think you're right about that um it was i mean but and it's a very like basic menu there's no frills at all it's just like chapters and (laughs) setup and like your setup doesn't give you an option for commentary or anything special it's just like you know um yeah it's i wonder in some ways if like it wasn't a sophomore slump at all but i almost wonder if the the fact that like menace to society was so critically acclaimed yeah that by comparison this one gets a little bit lost um which is unfortunate but i mean it often happens right like that a first film gets super celebrated and then people sort of hold the next one to such a different standard and so something that would normally be like super praised is like yeah we know they can do that you know right right Um, which doesn't feel fair at all well and menace to society is part of the criterion collection now like yeah it's still sort of i do too i was the laser disc i don't remember i'm not a laser disc expert i that i don't know Um, i'm not either but i have this weird memory of the laserdisc being 
in the Criterion Collection, and I'm probably wrong. Um, I'm looking it up now, but Criterion Laserdisc. No, yeah, it was. Okay. Oh, nice. Um, well, and maybe there's hope yet. We'll see. Yeah, there was like actual deleted scenes, commentary, uh, bonus features that were never carried over unfortunately um so you know criterion knew what was up back in the 90s by putting this movie in there and unfortunately have never you know they let their license lapse and never renewed it with disney which Mm -hmm. now would probably be impossible although they are releasing wally so they do have disney connections now um but yeah, the movie has just never been treated really well on home video. This was one of my first DVDs, I remember. And I remember being like sort of unimpressed by the way it was treated, but I didn't care because I loved the movie and was just happy to have it as part of my collection. Mm-hmm. Um, in the 90s, you know, all I could remember was the image of them in their face paint and right. just believing this to be like a heist movie, I didn't see it in theaters. I didn't catch up with it till VHS. And I remember being really surprised that the heist is essentially the last act of the movie. Um, and that it's really this much more sort of lived in story about what happens to this Vietnam veteran played by Lorenz Tate, uh, who comes home and is suffering from PTSD and can't find a decent job and is, you know, living in uh sort of in a bad situation. You know, he's got a baby, he's got another one on the way. He can't uh, provide for his family. Um, and it's really just this story, not just about how, Vietnam veterans were treated upon coming home from the war, but specifically Vietnam veterans of color. Right. Exactly. Um, And, you know, I've not watched every Vietnam movie out there. There's some that I think do. You were supposed to before this podcast. I know. I thought about trying, but then I was like, no, I don't think so. (laughs) Um, So, but I was thinking about the ones that really like resonate for me. And I have to say, and maybe it's recency bias, but I think this and the five bloods are like the two best ones that I've seen. And I think the reason I would say that is not only are the characters like really compellingly drawn and like very well acted, but I think it deals better with like the fallout, like the long-term implications in particular, Mm -hmm. you know, five bloods we're, we're talking about people that are now like senior citizens, basically going back to the scene. But um, I think it's kind of part of the same continuum, right? Of like, we put these people up, you know, to be churned <laughs> as, as part of this war machine. And then like, it reinsert them into society with zero support. And they're, what are they going to do? Like, right. um, and it wasn't a great time economically for America either, you know, in the seventies. The so um it was it was a bad combination of things and and less was understood or cared about in terms of mental health and the VA and things like that. So, you know, if it's bad now, it was much worse then. Sure. Um, so, yeah, I think 
the other thing that makes both of those movies effective is that they're both about groups of friends that have their problems with each other, but they're bonded by, you know, in, in dead president's case, they're bonded by like, you know, growing up together, but also by the, you know, the war and the things that they've experienced. Mm -hmm. And this is a movie that's also, you know, about those friendships and about how complicated they get, but like these guys still, despite like, you know, Bokeem Woodbine's character, for example, being like completely unhinged, they still stick with him and care about him and, you know, involve him in their plans and things like that, even though they've seen <laughs> what war has done to that man, right, you know? Right. And I appreciated that, it, that it's not just like grim. It's also about how they try to be each other's support, but that's still not really enough. Right. Do you, I, I... This might be because we're coming out of June exploitation, and so I have June exploitation on the brain. But do you think it's fair to? Because I think I've written about this movie before and referred to it as sort of a neo black exploitation movie. Do you think that's a fair categorization, or does is that reductive in terms of like what this movie has on its mind? I don't think it's reductive because that's a pretty broad category. I mean, if you look at the kinds of movies that people put in it really that kind of applies to a wide range of black cinema in the seventies. And I feel like in some ways the nineties is almost a sequel to that because mm -hmm. there's so much good black cinema in the nineties. You know, you've got your F Gary Gray's and you've got your Hughes brothers and you've got your Mario Van Peebles that we just talked about. <laughs> and, you know, we've got like, you know, um, all these, all these great independent and, and studio backed, um, black filmmakers making movies about the black experience and some of that is about you know inner city stuff and some of it is historical and you've got Spike Lee on the up and up right so there's all these different unique voices that are addressing you know that audience but also making it something that the rest of America can see and appreciate too so I don't think it's I don't think it's a misnomer I think that feels accurate I, part of me feels like that's sort of what the Hughes brothers we're after because mm -hmm. while it is telling this grounded sort of dramatic story, I think it's doing it through a lens of sensationalism, whether yeah. it's the Vietnam sequence or the heist sequence. I mean, the violence is really elevated in this movie um, so that when people are shot, it's very graphic and bloody and the Vietnam stuff, mm -hmm. there's some just gnarly gore going on in that. So I yeah. think they're pushing it into sort of genre territory deliberately um, so as to like, it's like, it's like feeding a dog a pill where you have to like put peanut butter on it. They're selling us on this Disney backed um heist slash war movie with all this you know this amazing soundtrack but they're talking about some really heavy shit yeah and i think even the fact that it's set in the 70s makes it feel more like a black exploitation film because it's sure. seeing the new york of that period which we've seen in so many you know um black exploitation movies i also heard an interview with i think it was albert um Hughes that was from like the past five or so years and he was talking about this movie and he said you know it's one that people approach him about a lot but he also has mixed feelings about how it turned out because he he's like we were so young then like they were 22 right. years old when they right. made this which is 
fucking insane. Yeah, that's um, wild. But also, he he was like, we were very young, we had Disney money, and we kind of like did go to extremes where mm-hmm. we maybe didn't need to. And I don't know if that helped the story. So like looking back on it, he has mixed feelings, but I still think it was very effective. Even the stuff that is like shock value, like the guy with his guts hanging out and, you know, all of that, like it still makes it impactful. And maybe that's one of the reasons why people do think about it and remember the people that do, right? Because it's not just bland. It doesn't gloss over anything. It's really in our faces. Well, it seems like a, the Hughes brothers are just sort of interested in genre cinema because they go on to make from hell and they make the book of Eli and sort of, they're sort of working in that sandbox more than once, but also this is a movie that feels very uh, informed by other movies. Mm -hmm. Um, Not in a, in a referential way, that became popular in the nineties that, you know, Tarantino sort of codified by, Hey, I'm going to reference this movie and this movie and this movie. But like, I think part of it just has to do with the fact that they were so young and they were talking about experiences that they hadn't had, but instead experiences that were sort of filtered down to them through movies. Mm -hmm. Their Vietnam feels very artificial and I don't think that's by accident. Like I know they shot it in Florida, but it feels like it's all done on sound stages. There's, Mm -hmm. it it feels like Vietnam as seen in the movies, as opposed to Vietnam as experienced by, you know, Oliver Stone, who was actually there and wants to make it as authentic as possible when he makes platoon, this feels like the movie version of the, the Vietnam war. And I wonder how much of that is deliberate and how much of that is just a function of them being so young. Yeah. It is interesting that they chose that as subject matter, right? As their follow-up, because I feel like Menace to Society, you could argue, is something that they at least had some firsthand knowledge of. Right. But this one, obviously they don't. And are they telling a story of their parents or grandparents are they telling a story of somebody they knew in their neighborhood or is this just invented um and i'm sure it's it's a combination of things right but i do think it's interesting that that's what they chose for their follow-up yeah it's i know it's taken in part from a book um by wallace terry called bloods an oral history of the vietnam war um, as well as like real incidents of an armored truck robbery by the Black Liberation Army. So they're pulling from real life events. But again, it, it feels like people telling you a story based on stories they've heard instead of yeah. like something that they've lived. And I don't say this as a knock against the movie. I actually think it's really interesting because Menace to Society is so interested in sort of authenticity and this to me embraces artifice and being a movie in a really interesting way it feels to me very different from menace to society um i know you know i read a little bit about the movie before we recorded and and the reviews were very mixed um the critics I, more than one critic kind of dinged them for being too ambitious which to me is crazy like why would you ever knock 
22 year old filmmakers for taking this big of a swing. Uh, if it doesn't connect with you, okay. But that's what I love about it. I love that they're trying to cover like this huge black experience over the course of a decade. Yeah. Uh, you know, as these 22 year old guys, um, I think I, that to me is part of what makes the movie so interesting. Yeah. A hundred percent. I, uh, I watched the Siskel and Ebert um, review and both of them didn't care for it, thought it was sort of missing the authenticity and missing the, you know, the uniqueness. And they felt like, well, you know, I know people that came back from Vietnam and didn't rob banks. So like, therefore this is not plausible. And right. Right. Ugh. I love both of them. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. Me that's, too. That's a different experience though. Right. Like right. this is not your lived experience. And so right you feel like it's not plausible, but it, it really was for some people. And um, I also think that especially now where we're in such a politically like divided time, the one thing that I would love to see us actually all get behind is like caring about veterans because there's a bigger and bigger population of them and they're all still like not super well cared for. And this movie highlights, you know, one generation of them, but now we're so many generations removed and that generation is still with us so it's just yeah i like that somebody young enough like them actually cared to take on a subject that heavy that wasn't necessarily their direct experience like to me that tells me that they're interested in more than just their own immediate world right and that's a good right right almost like i don't know there was this this attitude among critics in the 90s where it was a little bit like hey guys stay in your lane right and I don't know, were they, maybe a lot of people were getting that same reaction. I think part of it is what we saw from a lot of those filmmakers that I referenced earlier, whether, whether it's Kevin Smith or Ed Burns or Tarantino or Rodriguez or whoever, mm-hmm. was a refinement of ideas that they had already been working on on a studio budget. The right. leap from Brothers McMullen to She's the One is not a great leap. It's just a little more polished. Same with Desperado, mm-hmm. same with Mallrats. Um, and maybe that's what critics wanted from the Hughes brothers at the time was just a refinement yeah. of Menace to Society. Hey, do that again, but with Disney money. And they yeah. were like, no, we're actually going to take the Disney money and make this sprawling epic of a movie uh, that encompasses a bunch of characters over many years, having all these different experiences. That's going to be part war movie and part crime movie and part drama and part black exploitation. It's funny that I was like, I always think of this as a modern black exploitation movie. We're mm-hmm. much further away from Dead Presidents now than Dead Presidents was from black exploitation at the time. <laughs> like they were it's only totally true. Yeah. yeah. So it's not a modern, it's a 30 year old movie. It's not a modern black exploitation right. movie. You know, it's maybe part of like wave two, as you were pointing mm-hmm. out, but uh, it's not a modern movie anymore. It's 30 years old. Yeah, absolutely. But parts of it still feel really modern, you know? And I feel like sure. In, it's a weird thing to say this was a Disney movie because watching it, I'm like, this sort of still feels like independent cinema to me, mm-hmm. you know, like mm-hmm. there are elements of this that 
that feel bold in a way that I don't feel like studio movies necessarily get to be anymore, particularly no. like from Disney. And I want to just give a high five to whoever decided to give them Disney money to do this movie. Absolutely. <laughs> it's really cool that they got yeah. to. And, you know, I don't know that their future endeavors were this ambitious or this exciting. Like I thought I like from hell. I think it's a good movie, but it's not like this level of getting your heart pounding and being super invested in the characters and feeling like it's personal. Right. Um, you know, and I haven't seen book of Eli. I, thought about trying to watch it beforehand i just ran out of time um it's, it's but good but it's the kind of i think it's good and i think it shows their skill as filmmakers but it, it feels more like the kind of movie that could be made by any talented filmmakers yeah. as opposed to dead presidents which feels very much like their movie um yeah. and that's part of what i miss so much about the 90s it isn't so much that like all these indie filmmakers got, you know, an opportunity to make a second feature f- for more money inside the studio system, but like they got to work in the studio system and still make their movies. Right. And for the most part, I think that idea is gone because now you kind of graduate to Marvel or DC or some IP. It's like you make a good independent movie or a low budget movie and you're called up to the big leagues, but you're called up to work under this IP umbrella and you're no longer making your movie. We're seeing it, you know, it does still happen because we're seeing it with Greta Gerwig, who I think has managed to maintain her voice and we haven't seen Barbie yet, but we're both looking forward to it. And it does look like at least the work of a filmmaker with ideas and a vision right. as opposed to just, I'm going to make Barbie, f- the Barbie movie for Mattel. It's like, she has a point of view and, and again, I haven't seen it, so I can't speak too much about it, but we don't see filmmakers called up to studios now to make their movies where we see them called up to make the studios movie. Right. I mean, I think about like a Chloe Zhao, right, who had such a distinctive voice with Nomadland and The Rider, and then she gets called up to make The Eternals. That's nowhere near. I mean, good for her. Like, I'm glad. Sure, get Marvel money. Right. Absolutely. And maybe she'll go back to making something that she really cares about. But there was, um, you know no connection between, in my mind, between Eternals and her previous work, or even like somebody I'm only kind of like halfway invested in like Colin Trevorrow. I did love safety, not guaranteed. Me too. Um, And he gets called up to do like the Jurassic world movies, which have zero personality. You know what I mean? And I thought safety, not guaranteed was really fun and and quirky and interesting, but again, there's this huge disconnect, right? So yeah, I would love to see a world where they get just, here's some money, do your thing instead of here's some money, do you know, the next chapter of X cinematic universe. Right. Nia DaCosta gets called up to Marvel to make the Marvels. And it's like, maybe she puts some kind of spin on it, but I just think people get swallowed up in that system, you know? 
Um, and I'd be so much more curious to see what her next original idea would have been. Yes. You know, like she's a unique voice that I've been interested in following. And I thought Candyman had its issues, but I was still mostly invested in it. And, you know, I liked her, her previous work. So yeah, I guess I hope that they'll take these paydays and go make their passion projects, but I don't know how realistic it is. Well, even uh, this week, you know, there was a story about Greta Gerwig wanting to make big studio movies and I do not falter for that at all, but that, that came alongside a story of like, Greta Gerwig is going to make two Narnia movies for Netflix. And I've just never read a more dispiriting sentence because making movies for Netflix is already kind of a bummer given their track record. I have no attachment to the Narnia IP, the notion that she's going to be making two right off the bat. It's just, it's not where I want to see her working, you know? Uh, Right. And it's interesting because I think the last time you and I talked on a podcast, it was for Reality Bites and we talked about selling out, right? Yeah, I, yeah we sure did. I know this feels like a similar conversation, but I, I don't care if they sell out in terms of like getting commercial money. Like I want them. Of to. course, of course. Funded, but I wish there weren't so many strings attached, you know? And that's what it is, because, again, you could accuse the Hughes brothers of selling out by making dead presidents for Disney, but like they got to make their movie with Disney money. Yeah. That's there's nothing selling out about that, you know, exactly. And they got to put their own cast together, right? Like Lorenz Tate was in Menace to Society and then he shows up in Dead Presidents. Yeah, they, um, you know, they got to have this incredible group of people that aren't really huge names. I mean, maybe Chris Tucker was, you know, more of a name back then. But um, this is like around the same time as Friday, I think. Yeah. So, I mean, he was on the rise, but I don't think he was like a huge box office draw freddie rodriguez i mean he right you know, i love well, the, him but he hasn't been in a lot or bokeem woodbiner and bushy Wright. like these are names that you see you know further down the list usually in a cast and these are the stars of your movie so i just love that again disney took that chance on them and let them really put together the movie that they envisioned yeah no the cast for this movie is bananas because everybody who shows up is like somebody you're happy to see show up in a movie. Yeah. Even if in 1995, you didn't know that yet, you know, you didn't necessarily know who Michael Imperioli was. You knew he was spider from Goodfellas, but like, yeah, he shows up in the Vietnam sequence or Bokeem Woodbine. um, Or Terrence Howard. I mean, Terrence Howard in a small role. Right. 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 He's only in it for a very short time, but you're like, that's Terrence Howard. Right. And yeah. he's great. And you kind of understand why he goes on to bigger things. Yeah. Uh, I haven't seen Nabouche Wright in a lot of stuff. I know her, know her mostly from like Blade. Right. She's so good in this movie. She's so good in this movie. Yeah. Um, it was actually supposed to be Jada Pinkett Smith. but I read I guess- that. Jada, because Jada, of course, was a menace to society and she, right. you know, had a good relationship with them. The reason she turned it down, supposedly, is because she was close to Tupac and Tupac was feuding with the Hughes brothers at right. the time. And she didn't want to, like, be caught in the middle. But I think Nabushi does a great job, or Nabushi, uh, yeah, does a great job in this movie. I would like to see more of her work and maybe there's stuff out there that I haven't seen that I need to, like... Three Strikes comes to mind. I haven't watched that, but I know I've never seen it. Three Strikes. 
I've never seen Fresh. I've never seen Zebrahead. I mean, oh, she's you in watch stuff. Fresh, Patrick. It's so good. Okay. She's really, yeah, she is in that. Um, she's not like the main star, but she is in it. Fresh is great. And yeah. Fresh is another one, right? That's oh, as Boaz Yakin. Okay. Yeah. Um, who then that goes has on a to young like Carlo Esposito? It has a young Samuel L. Jackson. Yeah, it's really good. And Boaz Yakin like goes on to do studio stuff too. You know, yeah. like. Um, what we were talking about, uh, Bokeem Woodbine. Have you seen Caught Up? I have not. Please put Caught Up on your list. Okay. It is speaking of like '90s black exploitation movies. Caught Up, I think, is streaming on Prime still. Okay. I would kill for a Blu-ray of Caught Up. It is so amazing, and yeah. Bokeem is the star of that one. Awesome! I will definitely add that to my list. Yeah. He's the one that, like, every time I watch this movie, I'm like, this guy is just, it's a masterful performance. And you, you, you know, I was reading just the IMDb trivia, which I recognize is, like, not worthwhile. <laughs> sure. Because it's the so people fun. who contribute the trivia are, t- there's two kinds of people. One is superhero people who just want to mm-hmm. tell you which actors from Dead Presidents starred as superheroes in later movies. Um, and Bokeem Woodbine played like shocker in the first Spider-Man, the first Tom Holland Spider-Man. Okay. Uh, and the other people are weapons people who just want to tell you every kind of gun that's used in the movie. Well, that's fun and healthy. Yeah. It's real disturbing reading that, but yeah, I was just like, wow, we can really, we have these great actors cast in this movie and we can only talk about them in terms of like, Keith David and McKean Woodbine and Freddie Rodriguez were all in these comic book movies. And it's just like, what? <laughs> oh boy, there's so much more we could be talking about, but this is how we talk about movies now. Yeah. Ugh. Well, for me, Freddie Rod- Rodriguez is always somebody I'll associate with six feet under. Cause he's on that show as a regular. And I right. love, love, love six feet under. Um, I, I don't know why he never had like a bigger movie career. Like he's been in some stuff, but yeah. he's not, super well known he's the lead of planet terror that is very true and very <laughs> worth watching he's great in um, that movie. yeah lorenz tate is one i also always feel like should have a bigger career and i know he has done other things and mm-hmm. i love love Jones. that's like my other big lorenz tate movie that i adore yeah super um, good so you know i i know he's done some other stuff and i think he's in a tv show maybe now um but he just really had such charisma and he also kind of captures the, you know, the tortured side really well. Um, Those scenes towards the end with him and his uh, girlfriend, because I don't think they're married, right? His his girlfriend um, are very intense and really like almost hard to watch because it's, it feels so real but you also totally see why he's reacting the way he is. And the two of them just, you know, it's like so sad because they were so cute together as teenagers. And and now to see what they've become is, is really tough, but I just think he's a really strong lead in this. And I'm glad that he got to be a lead in a a few movies that, you know, played to his strengths. Yeah, definitely. It was funny. I was watching it today. And I could like excuse so much of the stuff, I think, because I'm at like 
this movie remove from like all the crime stuff and all the war stuff. And, but as soon as he like puts his hands on his partner, I was like, Oh, you've, you've gone way too far that I can't excuse. Like he he straight up murders people in this movie. And I was just like, Hey, it's justified. Right. He was in Vietnam. He's all fucked up. But when he puts his hands on her, I was like, Oh no, I'm turning on you, Anthony. Like, yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this movie's super good and I wish more people would talk about it. And I hope, and I'm glad you brought up love Jones. Cause that movie's so good. It is also, also in the criterion collection. Right? <laughs> Maybe they just need to add this one and then they can have a whole like Lorenz Tate thing on the channel. Yes. Uh, more importantly, he plays Ford Lincoln Mercury in Kevin Costner's the postman, which just came up on oh. last week's show and really should come up on every episode. Well, I haven't seen The Postman, so maybe I'll add that to my watch. Your list continues to grow, but I would put that one way down. Like, (laughs) watch Caught Up, because that's going to be your jam, I know. Then watch The Dirties. Yeah, and Night Shift. Then Night Shift. No, sorry. Caught Up, then Night Shift, then The Dirties, and then way down the list, watch The Postman. Okay, you got it. (laughs) Thank you for helping me prioritize uh anything else we should say about dead presidents um the soundtrack or the score is by uh danny elfman i i forgot about that and then it, it came up and it was like this sounds elfmanish and i yeah. looked and sure enough so i guess that's also a product of being a disney um property but i thought it was really cool i d- really only noticed his music during the opening credits sequence and I will admit, I was like, I don't know if he's the right fit for this. And then the rest of the movie, I honestly didn't really notice his his score because I was paying so much attention to all the like diegetic pop music that's used in the yeah, movie, exactly. which yeah, works exactly. amazingly. All those songs are great. So good. In fact, there were like, I think, two soundtracks released for this movie. Nice. I think there's like a volume one and a volume two. Um, yeah, there totally is. Um those would be worth tracking down. But yeah, interesting that Danny, this is not a movie that gets talked about much when we're talking about Danny Elfman scores. It isn't. Um, but yeah, I, I loved the music in this and I would love to see somebody take it upon themselves to release it in a special edition or even just like a regular Blu-ray, but with like the commentary and stuff added back in. Yes, it, please. It, absolutely. Definitely. So. Disney's not going to do it, but maybe like Kino can license it or something. I don't know. But yeah somebody needs to show it some love even bringing back the old criterion edition like this movie needs to be back in the conversation for sure well thanks for letting me have a conversation about it that was thank you yes it was awesome thank you guys very much for listening as always go to fthismovie.com every day for more cool shit follow us on twitter at fthismovie for as long as that site lasts uh you can email us at fthismoviepodcast at gmail.com and we have a patreon with bonus content and bonus episodes uh go to patreon.com slash fthismovie for more cool shit thank you again rosalie this was awesome thanks patrick have a good vacation thanks you too Woohoo! bye everybody
Thanks for listening to FS Movie.